And so today, we are going to uh, continue uh, our journey uh, through Acts. And we've come to a really interesting place. You know, as I shared uh, last time, uh, that we're in a place in Acts where Paul is no longer uh, traveling. He's no longer going from city to city and planting congregations and talking to people and all that. Now what we basically have is a series of speeches all the way to the end. Uh, he has been arrested. He was in Jerusalem and he was arrested and he spoke to, uh, you know, to the people at large in Jerusalem. We talked about that last week. This week is his defense. It's called an, an, an apologia, you know, just where we get the word apologetics from, right? A defense uh, of himself and what he's doing. Uh, and, uh, and this one is before the Sanhedrin. And then after that, there's going to be several more in front of Roman authorities. Uh, and it's very interesting what he says and how he says it. Uh, and uh, Luke adds these speeches because they kind of tie together the message in of Luke and Acts, of Luke slash Acts, the message of Yeshua and, um, you know, and, and of who we are, uh, who we are in him. So uh, if you were here last time, you remember that he gave a speech, and as soon as he said where he gave a testimony where God said to him, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, everybody went berserk, right? Uh, and uh, in fact, they tried to kill him, right? And so Paul gets arrested as like a, as like a rebellious person, right? And, uh, and he tells the Roman authorities that he's a, a Roman citizen. Uh, uh, by birth, from his birth, he's a Roman citizen. And so now, well, now they know he's a Roman citizen, so they don't quite know what to do with him because evidently he hasn't broken any Roman laws. And this is an intra-Jewish problem, uh, and, but it's causing a great uh, upheaval. So they're not quite sure what to do with him. So this is very interesting, and we'll see how this unfolds. So now, now that there was this big upheaval when he's speaking to the just like ad hoc, speaking to Jewish people publicly. So now they figure, well, let's bring him before their own authorities. You know, let's bring him before the Jewish authorities. Let's bring him before the Sanhedrin. Maybe they'll get it figured out, right? And so here we go. It says here, so the beginning of chapter 23. And Paul, looking intently at the council, said, brethren, again, just like he said earlier, brethren, you know, he, these are his people. This is not some foreign entity, right? Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now, when he says that, uh, you know, he's already said what a great persecutor he has been and, you know, and uh, how he was uh, really kind of a bad guy. Uh, you know, so he's not saying when he says, I've had a clear conscience up until, you know, to this very day, he doesn't mean he's been perfect and that he's never uh, been guilty of anything uh, or that he's never done anything wrong. But he's speaking in terms, he's talking to the Sanhedrin. He's speaking in terms of being Jewish. He's talking about being Jewish. He says, in other words, I have a clear conscience to this very day that, that uh, you know, I have had an encounter 
with Hashem. I have had an encounter with Adonai. I've had an encounter with the God of Israel. And I am a, quote unquote, <laughs> I am a good Jew. <laughs> you know? I, and, I, and that's what he means. That's what he's referring to. Okay? All right. Now, the high priest now is, you know, Ananias, uh, not, not uh, Caiaphas uh, earlier on. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him in the mouth, slap him in the face. Okay. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Sounds like Yeshua, doesn't it? Uh, when he talked about you know, them being you know, whitewashed tombs, right? In other words, you look nice on the outside, but the inside, it's pretty disgusting. All right, this is what he says. This is his reaction after he got struck in, after he got slapped in the face or punched in the mouth, which, by the way, was not according to the rules. Right? They're not supposed to do this. This is, um, you know, what Luke is demonstrating very much is that uh, you know the Sanhedrin when they met and uh, and basically convicted Yeshua. They were, you know, they were meeting in a way that was not uh, legal for them, right? Uh, and here, striking uh, Paul in the mouth, this was not the. This is not the way they're supposed to uh, carry themselves. One of the things it tells you is the emotional uh, fervor of the day uh, regarding Yeshua. Okay. Then Paul uh, said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And do you sit to try me according to the Torah and in violation of the Lord order me to be struck? Okay. Now, but the bystander said, do you revile God's high priest? Like, wow, you're speaking to the high priest that way. Okay. Now, Paul says something interesting here. He says, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So then the question is, pages and pages have been written. on what did he mean by this? That he didn't know that this was the high priest, right? It could mean a number of different things. It could mean that, you know, Paul had been away for a long time. And maybe he didn't recognize that the person speaking to him was the high priest, perhaps. Uh, or... Uh, uh, perhaps uh, he is speaking uh, sarcastically to the high priest. Like, who do you think you are? You know, the mantle has been uh, the mantle has been moved, right? So that's a possibility uh, as well. Uh, others have said that um, that uh, Paul uh, uh, reacted, just reacted. You know, and said what he said. And then, uh, when, you know, when the dust settles for a moment and, uh, someone says, whoa, he's the high priest. Then Paul says, whoa, wait a minute. I get, you know, he's the high priest. I, you know what the real answer is? Nobody knows exactly what he meant. Okay. Nobody knows exactly what he meant. I, uh, all right. And that's one of the wonderful things about the text here. You know, uh, that we're, we're, we're getting, if Luke just wanted to write it in, in, you know, in a particular way, there would be no issues or anything. He would not have really given an eyewitness account, you know, but he's giving an eyewitness account. This is what he said. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so one of the things 
that you see here is that perhaps Paul is showing some respect, uh, even though he reacted, uh, you, you know, uh, the way he did. Now, you, you know, I, it reminds me again of that passage. You know, when Yeshua is saying like, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, he's not saying that uh, because he really uh, holds them in, in contempt. He is saying that uh, because they are the uh, they are the doorkeepers, you know, uh, and that they have become shepherds who are eating the sheep, you know, rather than protecting the sheep. And so he is angry at them. He doesn't hate them. Uh, you know, he he weeps over Yeshua weeps over them, and Paul here, as he speaks, as he spoke. Uh, in chapter 22, and as he speaks again in, in this speech, clearly is not holding uh, them in contempt. In fact, he's going to say something very interesting uh, here. All right. Another thing I think that we need to remember is that, again, this is an intra-Jewish uh, uh, conversation, you know, Sometimes when we read these things, we get the idea that Paul has left the flock, he's become a Christian, and now he's speaking as a Christian Jew, uh, you know, back into the community that he has forsaken and left. Uh, and uh, that is not the case. That's not what's happening here. He's still part of, of them as he's going to testify right now. Okay? Uh, and, uh, and, and so, uh, as, uh, I mean, I've shared this in, seminars probably and messages before that, you know, when your family is uh, sitting around the, well, you, you know, you're going to have Thanksgiving maybe this week and maybe you'll be with relatives, right? You speak to your relatives differently than you do other people. We, we, we often do that. Not everybody, I can tell. Uh, but uh, sometimes we do, you know, like uh, we might, you might say to your brother or your sister sitting at the table, what's the matter with you? What are you talking about? You know, you know, speaking in such a way that if, a, if an outsider spoke that way, uh, we might take offense, right? So this is an, you're, you're like a fly on the wall uh, in, a, in, a, in a Jewish conversation, okay? Very good. That, by the way, is how the Talmud works. Uh, you know, you read all kinds of things uh, in the Talmud, but you always have to remember these are Jews talking to other Jews. It's not outsiders speaking into it. Anyway, that's what we have here. All right, so here's what he does. In verse 6, it says, But perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Wow. So he's saying, I am a Pharisee, and my father was one before me. He doesn't say, you know, before I was saved, I was a Pharisee, and then I came to know the Lord, and I repented of it, you know, and I'm not that anymore, right? I would suggest that is what the majority of people think, Okay. But very important that we say, I am, and my father was before me, you know? I, and, and then he says, I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Now, he might have said this for a couple of different reasons. One is 
That's why he's on trial, right? And uh, if you read the book of Acts carefully, you notice that the overwhelming message of Peter, John, and Paul is the resurrection. It's the overwhelming message is the resurrection, that Yeshua rose from the dead. Like The good news is that the Messiah rose from the dead, okay? Now, of course, we know that it's there's more than, you know, Yeshua died for our sins and, you know, uh, suffered in our place and so on and so forth. Uh, but when they speak publicly, it is, uh, it is quite clear that the emphasis is on uh, the resurrection. Now, I, uh, now Luke is going to explain, uh, a little bit about also why he says this. Okay. He says, and as he said this, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Okay. I, and then we'll just hear the next, um, Verse says, and there arose a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. So the uh, it's interesting that the Sadducees, uh, generally speaking, you can't say, you know, every single one, but generally speaking, I viewed uh, life as you see it. When you're dead, you're done. Uh, and uh, that there is uh, very little or nothing to the invisible world of angelic beings and God's uh, hand guiding activities uh, in this, uh, you know, in, in this life, like the providence of God, and, you know, the activity of God. The Pharisees, on the other hand, did, in fact, uh, believe that um, in angelic beings, uh, did believe that God could, would com- could communicate with individuals, you, you, you know, uh, and that there would be a resurrection at the end, all right? The biggest problem that the Pharisees had with the message is a resurrection when it's not the end. The, the, the timing, the first coming, one might say, you know, uh, of Yeshua. That could be why it says some of the Pharisaic party, because <laughs> they weren't quite sure about it. it's not the end of the end, and what are you talking about resurrection? However, it is really important, I think, for us to recognize that um, uh, the concept of a resurrection from the dead is not some newfangled thing. Is not a uh, uh, some kind of Greek idea, Platonic idea that was embraced uh, by the quote unquote church, okay? Uh, or that Yeshua himself introduces something that was foreign to uh, Jewish ideas or Jewish thinking. The idea of the resurrection of the dead by the time of Yeshua was most definitely part of uh, Jewish belief, okay? Uh, and, and definitely, uh, you know, part of the tradition of Israel. You read about it uh, in, the, uh, in the Second Temple literature, right? You know, in uh, Enoch and 
Maccabees and, and places like that, you read about the resurrection of, of the dead, right? I, I just have some quotes here. Uh, in Enoch 91.10, Then the righteous one shall arise from his sleep, and the wise one shall arise, and he shall be given unto them, <coughs> excuse me, unto the people, and through him the roots of oppression shall be cut off. You know, that kind of thing. The righteous one shall awaken from his sleep. He shall arise and walk uh, in the ways of, uh, of righteousness. And then in Maccabees, in 2 Maccabees, is a Hanukkah story about resurrection, right? About Hannah and her seven sons and, and how they are martyred, right? And they willingly die uh, knowing that they'll be raised from the dead. Uh, and, uh, I, and so uh, I have here a quote here. Um, one of the sons says, you are making us depart from the present life, but the king of the universe will resurrect us who die for the sake of his laws to a new eternal life. I, the, the mother says this, the mother who watches her seven sons die. Uh, she says, I do not know how you came uh, to be in my womb. It was not I who gave you spirit and life. Surely then the creator of the universe who shaped man's coming into being with mercy will restore spirit and life, uh, restore spirit and life uh, uh, to you. Uh, and then of course, there's other places as well. And in the Tanakh, though, there are there are several places that speak about uh, resurrection from the, from the dead. Uh, one of them is uh, in uh, Isaiah. In Isaiah uh, chapter 26, okay? In Isaiah chapter 26, uh, we read this. Uh, verse 19, Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. I mean, that is, uh, that is clearly speaking about living after you die. Okay? Uh, and then, of course, you know, there is uh, Daniel uh, in Daniel chapter 12. And this is perhaps one of the most important passages, and I would suggest that the passages that we read about in Enoch and in that second temple literature uh, was really motivated by what you read here in Daniel chapter 12. So uh, it says at the beginning of Daniel 12, now at that time Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting death. Speaks clearly of, of, a, of living after you die. Now, many of us are probably thinking, but what about like Ezekiel 37? Right, that's about the dead bones. The thing about that passage uh, is is that really, in its context, it's speaking about the restoration of the nation, not of an actual dead person living again. You know what I'm saying? 
It's talking about the nation who's scattered, the nation, the nation will come back into being. Uh, but later on in history, certainly it becomes a passage that is pointed to in later rabbinic literature having to do with, uh, you know, resurrection uh, from the dead. But the Daniel passage and the Isaiah passage clearly speak about living after, living again after you die. And what we learn is, is that over time, this understanding of resurrection, living after you die, uh, not resuscitation, okay, but resurrection, uh, living forever after you die, okay, uh, is something that evolved, is, was a belief that evolved in, in Judaism, okay? So the point is, you see some passages, a couple of passages in the Tanakh that speak of it for sure, but we know that in that second temple, that very important second temple period, that the understanding of resurrection evolved and became a prominent cornerstone belief. Now, in the Gospels, there is a great interaction between Yeshua and the Pharisees, and it is absolutely, it is just like something you read in the Mishnah. Yeshua actually, um, or with the Sadducees, the Sadducees are challenging him on this belief in life after death. And the way he answers them is, uh, you know, is really an amazing thing. It's in, there's several versions of it, but let's turn to Mark chapter 12 for just a second. Okay. All right. Now, by the way, an important uh, verse is verse 15. When it's where it says why, where he says, "Why are you testing me? Why are you testing me?" Yeshua is speaking to them. Why are you testing me? It has to do there with with something else, with paying taxes. But we're not going to talk about that today. But I, I, in verse eighteen, it's sort of the same conversation, so to speak. So in verse eighteen, it says, "And some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, okay." came to him and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and raise up offspring to his brother. These were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no offspring. The second took, took her and died, leaving behind no offspring. The third likewise, and so all seven left no offspring. Last all of the all the last of all the women of all the women died also. In the resurrection, when they arise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. That is, I love this because this is called baiting. They're not asking a real question. It's kind of like the question that we get sometimes. Howard, are, are you saying my grandmother is in hell? Is that what you're saying? My, you know, because they're not really asking me. They're not, they're not really. The, the, the answer to that question, by by the way, is: Are you concerned about that? Okay, because I never met your grandmother. I'm not saying I know. I even know your grandmother's name. Okay, so is this a concern of yours? If it's a concern of yours, we can talk about it. All right, that's called baiting. It's not a real question. It's not a real question, okay? Uh, it's trying to trip them up, trip us up, you know? Uh, and that's what they're doing, 
They're not real concerned about a woman with seven husbands. They're trying to trip him up. Don't take the bait, my friends. Okay? Yeshua doesn't. Yeshua said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? Okay? In other words, you, don't, you, you clearly don't understand uh, the, the scriptures. He's not saying, uh, hey, let, me, uh, let, me, let me figure that out. Uh, wait a minute. Uh, no. Okay? So here he's going to say this. For when they arise from the dead. In other words, he's saying that you know, there is a resurrection. And when they arise from the dead, they, 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 they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again. See, he, ans- he begins to answer the question in verse 26. Okay, But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush? And what's significant about this is this is in the Torah, and it doesn't specifically talk about the resurrection of the dead. But, well, here, I'll, just, I'll read it and then I'll explain. How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but, the, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. So he knows what they're really asking about is the reality of resurrection from the dead, not about what happens to people, you know, whether they get married or, or that's not what they, re- the issue is resurrection from the dead. A wise man once said to me, Howard, always answer the person, not the question. Answer the person, not necessarily the question, okay? And so he's talking to them about the reality of the resurrection of the dead. But he quotes this passage. What this tells us is, is by this time, by by the time you come to the first century, this belief in resurrection had evolved to the place where now there were all kinds of texts in the Torah and the prophets uh, that the uh, that the elders, the Pharisees, that the tradition uh, would teach that where it talks about resurrection uh, in the uh, in the in the Tanakh, and Yeshua is speaking here like a Pharisee. He's he is giving the Pharisee answer using a text that you would read about, like in the Mishnah, what you would read about in the rabbinic literature, right? And see, now it's important for us to remember that uh, soon after the time, back in Acts 23, soon after this period of time, the temple was destroyed, right? And, and the priesthood was gone. There was no longer a priesthood. There was no longer Sadducees. They, they didn't exist anymore. The Pharisees morphed into the later the rabbis and those who wrote down the traditions, right? And so the a lot of what we read in the uh, in the Mishnah, which was sort of a codification of the law of Moses for people living outside of the land when there was no longer a temple. And then later on, another larger work called the Talmud were witnesses of earlier teachings. Does that make sense? They were witnesses of what was orally understood here in the days of Yeshua. And so clearly here, Yeshua takes a very famous text from the Torah and says, see, there is a resurrection of the dead. All right. 
That's a classic, that's a great passage uh, right there. Now, we know today from our Siddur, from um, what we read this morning, uh, and what we read uh, every uh, Shabbat morning, and what many Jewish people read every single day, at least three times, right, is the Amidah. And in the Amidah, and may, and may I suggest that, you know, these paragraphs are found in this literature, in this rabbinic literature, right? We're familiar uh, with uh, King, Supporter, Savior, and Shield. Blessed are you, Lord, Shield of Abraham. Lord, you are mighty forever. You call the dead to life. You are mighty to save. And then you sustain the living with loving kindness and with great mercy. You revive the dead. You uphold those who fall, heal the sick, set the captives free, and keep faith with those who sleep in the dust. Lord of might, who is like you? King, who can be compared to you? You decree death and restore life, causing salvation to flourish. You are faithful to revive the dead. Blessed are you, Lord, who calls the dead to life. Clearly, Resurrection is a Jewish belief, okay? Uh, and um, uh, in addition, I think I have it here. I don't need to look it up. In addition to that, you read in this literature statements like this. All Israelites have a share in the world to come. As it is said, your people also uh, shall be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands. I, I shall be glorified. I, we also read this. And, they, and these are the ones who have no portion in the, in the age to come. He who says the resurrection of the dead is a teaching that does not derive from the Torah. Okay? I, the, the, so, you know, that's a very famous, very famous statement, uh, you know, in Judaism that you won't be raised from the dead if you don't believe it, okay? But the Torah teaches it, and you better believe in the resurrection of the dead, all right? It's one of Maimonides' cardinal, uh, you know, Jewish uh, 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 beliefs, and that's in the Middle Ages. Uh, and, and so, very important uh, that we recognize that. So when Paul is uh, teaching about the resurrection of the dead... Uh, he's talking about, when he says, the hope and resurrection, why are you upset if I'm talking about the hope and the resurrection of the dead? Right? Uh, and we see that uh, the uh, Sadducees, uh, they, uh, you know, uh, they do not hold this. And the Pharisees were now kind of left to say, well, wait a minute. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. Right, and so some of them even say that we find no fault with this man, right? Uh, and uh, and so there's an uproar uh, that uh, that takes place. But for us, uh, how important it is to remember that uh, the resurrection and the resurrection the resurrection of the Messiah uh, is indeed a very important part of the message of the good news. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, on Sunday nights, we're reading this book, Jerusalem Crucified, Jerusalem Risen, and the backdrop of that is Luke and Acts, and this emphasis on the resurrection of Yeshua 
and how the resurrection of the Messiah is indeed good news for Israel. All right, and so it says here, and as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces uh, by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from there by force and bring him into the barracks. I mean, the guy's a Roman citizen, right? So they can't, they can't let him, uh, they can't let him uh, be uh, murdered, okay? Uh, and so then it says, And on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, you so you must witness at Rome also. Now, you know what's interesting about that is here, while the Sadducees may not have believed that human beings can receive like messages from angelic beings or from God, uh, or that, uh, you know, God's uh, providential hand is at work, they were playing a role in bringing it to pass, just as Yeshua's persecutors were, were fulfilling uh, prophecy, you, you see? Uh, and so God is at work. So even when there's persecution and things of that nature, uh, God is indeed at work. Nothing is outside of his hand. And so God has uh, uh, told Paul here that you're going to go to Rome. And so the fact that there's such a tumult causes him to stay in the, uh, you know, under the watchful eye of Roman authorities. And as we'll see, they don't know what to do with him. So he's now going to go to, to Felix. The, the, you know, we're going to the next rung of the ladder. Uh, and then it goes, uh, it, it goes farther. And at the end of the story, he's in Rome. And we'll talk about that when we, when we get there. Okay. So now, uh, uh, to, just to move right along, when um, uh, there's something else that just, by the way, that's kind of interesting uh, here. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit farther. And when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And there was more than 40 who formed this plot. And they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Meaning, that's what was going on. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. Isn't this just uh, horrible? You, you know, it's a conspiracy to, to kill him. Uh, for we, on our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. And this is so far outside of Jewish law and practice. Uh, you know, it's just clearly amazing. But now the next verse is fascinating. We learn something about Paul's life and his family. But the son of Paul's sister, so he had a sister and he had a nephew, okay? The son of Paul's sister, Paul's nephew, heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. And then what happens is Paul is now going to tell the Roman authorities and they're going to secure him away so that this does not take place. One can only wonder, was his sister and nephew, were they believers also? Kind of interesting. But what I did want to read is a few verses toward the end of the chapter, okay? I, I, and so it, beginning in verse 24, it says, And they, uh, they were also to provide mounts for Paul, to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So they're, they're going to try to figure out what to, do, what to do with him. 
So they're going to bring him now to the Roman governor, and that's Felix. He wrote a letter, and this is what he says in the letter. It's kind of interesting. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came upon them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charges for which they were accusing him, I brought him to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. And when I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the point is, is that we're, we're not going to let uh, you know, a vigilante conspiracy group come and kill him. We're going to do things according to uh, a law. And so I instructed representatives of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, uh, to come before you to adjudicate this mess because I don't know what to do with them. Okay, and so that's the next installment, uh, you know, in the uh, in the next uh, in the next chapter. But you know, there are uh, just very briefly a couple of things, uh, you know, for us to to remember when we read passages like this. Okay, uh, we see the hostility. Even though he was a Pharisee, even though he could identify with the Pharisees, it didn't seem to uh, take away the passion against him. It wasn't like, oh, okay, so you're one of us and it's going to be okay. All right? I, one of the things that we learn here is that Yeshua was and always is an undeniable issue to be dealt with in the Jewish community. Okay, you know, uh, I'm uh, I'm going to be sharing some things in our congregational meeting tomorrow, uh, but uh, I was, as I said, I was just in Phoenix uh, at a meeting called the Messianic uh, Leadership Roundtable, which uh, is a group of uh, people who, uh, not all, but a group of people who lead congregations and lead uh, organizations, Messianic organizations. Uh, and um, and so I can tell you, as Bob Dylan has sung, the times they are a changing. Okay, they really are. Uh, you know, sometimes if you're part of a, uh, if you've been going to uh, like a church your your whole life, and, and you know, and you, you kind of just have the feeling of, okay, this is where I go, this is where I learn, this is what I do. We, you know, we don't see ourselves that way. We're part of a movement, right? Uh, and uh, and we are part of a movement that is in that had a beginning, had a definite beginning, okay. Uh, and uh, we're not quite sure where it's where it's headed right now, uh, because uh, of the first wave of uh, leaders of messianic leaders, I. I'm on the youngish end, okay? And just throwing that out there, all right? Uh, and right now we have, there are some uh, 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 new uh, young leaders. Uh, there is, uh, you know, lots of people like me, lots of people like us, you know, trying to figure it out and, 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 and all of that. But we'll talk more about that at our meeting tomorrow. 
But one of the things that came out uh, was about uh, a, a relationship with the Jewish community. Uh, and uh, we all remember uh, when our relationship with the Jewish community clearly was, uh, when the Jewish community was kind of afraid of us. Actually, Jewish community is afraid of us, you know, taking people away, right? Hence, you had the, uh, the birth of organizations like Jews for Judaism, right? Some of you have heard of that, right? Right, which was uh, uh, an anti-Yeshua organization. I can tell you stories. I can tell you stories about that. Uh, but you know, you don't see that anymore. We don't see that anymore. The Jewish community uh, is not really too concerned overall about us. We're still institutionally ostracized, but they're not too concerned anymore about us because you know. There, uh, there's, we don't see all these uh, uh, numbers of Jewish people uh, uh, coming to believe. And, and so what um, one, a very, one, one person said, he said, you know, our message is not we're Jewish. That's not our message, right? Our message is Yeshua. Our message is the Messiah, all right? Uh, and, uh, and, and so it's, it's interesting. I wrote, I wrote here that, uh, you know, the community used to be afraid of us. Uh, and this is this, this is not what he said. This is what I'm saying. He said it, it's like there's it, it's like there's an inoculation, but there are breakthrough cases of Jewish people coming to faith. Uh, you, you know, uh, and uh, uh, and and that's it's an important thought uh, for us to have uh, of uh, vibrancy. In other words, of. Uh, making sure that the message doesn't get lost, that we don't forget where we came from, basically. That we don't forget where we came from. That we don't forget what birthed us. Uh, you know, there was a time when this, when this was a radical, right? This was a radical movement. I mean, this was um, this, well, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, you know, and, uh, and uh, we would get the attention of the Jewish community. Now, some would say, yeah, but, uh, but it was, uh, you know, there was antagonism. But something just to think about is, but there were Jewish people coming to believe uh, through all of that. Through all of that. It wasn't about making nice. It wasn't about, will, we, will they like us? Or are we accepted? Or, uh, uh, you know, that wasn't, we're comfortable in our skin. We know who we are, you know? We define that, not, uh, you know, it's not, we, we need to be validated uh, by the Jewish community in order for us to feel uh, good about ourselves or, or relevant. Uh, and so very important for us to, uh, you know, to remember that and never forget that. Uh, and that's what you see here in this text. And as I said, I have a lot more to say on that, but I'm going to save that for our uh, congregational meeting. And... Uh, and just some things for us to remember. But uh, for us, so let, let us remember, you know, may we uh, uh, not shrink back. May we uh, not be embarrassed uh, by the good news, right? Now, we need to present the good news in a way that it can be understood, uh, you know, and uh, that is very important. Oh, I know, there was one other thing I just want to read to you. I just want to read to you. Uh, there was a, uh, a Jewish believer who lived uh, pre-World War II. His name was Abram Polyak. Polyak. You might have seen his name in print, but it looks like J. 
It looks like P-O-L-J-A-K, right? But it's pronounced polya. Uh, and uh, he wrote he, he wrote something really interesting. He talked about the uh, the reconciliation process of Jewish of all Israel coming to believe. You know, at the end, and he said there's a process, and this is what he wrote. There's seven of them. First, there's stages. Cease to condemn Yeshua as an apostate. One, two. Begin to think about him as a historical figure. Right. Three. Recognize him as a brother. In other words, as a Jewish person. Four, accept him as a teacher of Torah. Five, acknowledge him as a prophet. Six, acknowledge him as a Jew who is the central figure of Israel. Seven, acknowledge him as king and Messiah. So what's interesting is he wrote this like in, I don't know, the 1930s, something like that. Uh, And I would say that one, two, and maybe three I have kind of, we were kind of somewhere between three and four. In other words, cease to condemn Yeshua as an apostate, begin to think about him as a historical figure, and recognize him as a Jewish brother. Now, accept him as a teacher of Torah, that, (laughs) I'm not quite sure. But somewhere between three and four, you know? Uh, and, uh, And so things take time. Uh, And so we could say in that huge you know, in the meta story, uh, that there is movement, that there is movement. And, and yet today, and just like uh, it has been, uh, you know, Jewish people, uh, when presented with a true message of who the Messiah is, uh, there are still Jewish people who come to faith. But, you know, I, we have to tell them. We have to, uh, uh, you know, uh, place ourselves in the community. Uh, uh, we have to be in relationship with Jewish people uh, and tell them, not, not uh, venerate uh, uh, them. You know, oh, you're Jewish. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's fantastic. You know, that's, you know, great, but that's not the message of the Messiah. And, uh, and I think that when you read passages like you do here in Acts 23, it should... You know, it's kind of like motivate us uh, to in a you know in a in a way that communicates, not just you know doing something for the sake of uh, getting people angry or something, but to truly communicate uh, this message to our people, and that is certainly something that our movement needs to remember and kind of rejuvenate, you know. And uh, I think that's a great message here. Uh, and finally, just the fact that God's hand is, just as God's hand is leading Paul, when he might have thought, well, my life is over now. You know, this is like, now it's a train wreck, <laughs> you know? But that he sees that through all of these machinations, all these things, that he's going to end up in Rome. And so we can also... Uh, take solace in recognizing that God who began this work will continue it until it's done. And that we happen to be the people involved right now uh, in it. And so may we take the initiative and take our responsibility and keep moving forward. But God is the one who gives the increase. And uh, important things for us to remember. Let's pray. God, thank you, Lord, uh, that we're reminded once again that the message of Messiah Yeshua 
is a message of the hope of Israel, is the message that was uh, uh, proclaimed uh, by Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And uh, Lord, uh, um, may we uh, just always be thankful that you opened up our eyes and brought us into this movement, this messianic Jewish movement, no matter who, you know, regardless of who we are, you've brought us into it. And we could say, as we read in the book of Esther, for such a time as this, that wherever we've been and however long we've been is for this moment and moving forward. And so, God, may we not shirk our responsibility of being a light to the nations and a light to our people Israel. And may our community be able to see that Yeshua is indeed the hope of Israel the Messiah of Israel. And we pray in Yeshua's name.